listening to The Power to Make Change, a podcast with me, Kate Levine, talking to activists, campaigners and changemakers about why, how and what they do to make change in society. Hello, today I'm joined by Mark Cudigan, CEO of the immensely popular organic baby and toddlers food brand, Ella's Kitchen. Mark is not only a believer in business as a force for good, but he's someone who proves that people, planet and profit can all be balanced in a successful business. As well as his CEO role, he's a member of the B-Lab board. Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining today. Hi, Kate. Well, thanks for inviting me. Um, You're CEO of Ella's Kitchen. So many of our listeners who have children will know the brand pretty well, I think, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the company, the size of the company, where it trades, the products, um, as well as what drives Ella's Kitchen, what's its purpose? So Ella's Kitchen um, started 16 years ago, um, and it started, it was the brainchild of Paul Lindley, Ella was actually his eldest daughter, Um, and he started the company um, because, if you think back 16 years ago, well, when Ella was first weaning, they found it very difficult for her to get her to eat solid foods um, at the beginning of weaning. And he found that by using fun and colours and, and all of your senses, he was able to um, get her to eat food. And he looked around at the market at the time and he thought, wow, there's an opportunity for a brand that can do all that, that, that brings all of the senses to children. Uh, when they're weaning and Ella's Kitchen was born and that was uh, as I say 16 years ago we've grown up quite significantly since then so we're now in 40 markets around the world we're approaching 100 million pound turnover business Uh, we're based just outside Henley in Barnes Um, and yeah what else can I say Um, it's the best place I've ever worked it will be the best place I've ever worked it has totally changed my life in terms of um, I've been in business all of my working life and it's just shown me that there's another way of running a company um, and it goes to the, the heart of what the very purpose of a company is. Is it just to make money? Our, our mission at Ellis Kitchen was clearly identified from the start and that is to improve children's lives through developing healthy relationships with food. So it's all about health and nutrition and everything that we do, we do from that sort of starting point. So as well as, so it was a a purpose-driven business from the very beginning. And as well as, as you said, uh, when the founder realized, you know, that color and sort of fun could help with enticing children to eat and weaning, it's also about what's in there. So the content of the food too, so that the food was, was it organic from the beginning, Ella's Kitchen? Yeah, it was organic from the beginning. Yeah, and, and if you think about it as, as an adult, you know, if you go to a restaurant, it's not just the food that makes the the experience, you know. Um, it's the ambience, it's other people in the restaurants, the way you're served, it's like everything. You know, we eat with all of our senses. And that idea that, that children do as well, and they do, is where is the sort of birthplace, I suppose, um, of Ella's Kitchen in, in, in Paul's mind. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that was very important. So the whole picture, not just what what goes in. And 
Um, I guess that extends even further because Ella's Kitchen is a certified B Corporation. Um, and I know that the company went through that certification process with you at its helm. So um, I guess two questions. What was that like? What was that experience like? And also, why was it important for you that Ella's Kitchen became a B Corp? Why was it important for me personally? Yes, um, I think okay, so. so. As the leader of the company. Yeah. So the process of certifying it as a B Corporation is you have to answer a couple of hundred questions um, on an impact assessment. It's free to take the impact assessment, so any company can take it. It's online, freely available. Um, and I like it to, to a great lens through which to look at your company and make improvements to make your company stronger. You don't have to make the changes if you don't want to, but you look at all of these things and it just challenges you in loads of different ways and things that you probably haven't thought about um, running a company. So you have to get a, a certain grade. So you have to get 80 points out of 200 to certify as a B Corporation. That sounds easy. It's not easy. The whole process, I'd like to say, it's seamless and it takes weeks. It's, it's not. It's, it's really time consuming. You have to make changes. It asks you uncomfortable and difficult questions. But do you know what? I, I think when you then get to certify, you realise what all the other companies have been through who have certified. It kind of means more that it's so difficult to pass the grade. And once you've certified as a, as a B Corporation, well, basically what it what it it's proven is you've met the highest social and environmental standards. So you get the 80 points, you then have to change your articles of association at company's house, which is a big deal, to commit basically to the triple bottom line forever. So me now as a, a CEO of a, a certified B Corp, you know, I can be taken to task on what's it like to work? What's our environmental footprint like? What are we doing about it? So it's a huge commitment um, and I spoke to a team the other day, actually Sipsmiths, the wonderful gin company that have recently certified. Um, and they asked me to talk to their team. And I said to them, this is a big deal. Like your senior team are committing to these sets of values forever. And that's like, I said, you should be so, so proud to work for a company that is literally trying to be the change that we all want. For me personally, it just means everything. I can't imagine ever working for a company. I could work for a company that wasn't a B Corp, but I couldn't work for a company that didn't want to become a B Corp. I think yeah. it's going to be the most important movement of my lifetime because it's about how can we influence other people to follow us? So, you know, we have a team of just under 100 um, in Henley or Thames. We've probably got a million people that work directly in our supply chain. So don't I have a responsibility? I have an opportunity, but I would argue I have a responsibility to try and impact their lives. And if I can, or we can, we should. And that's what we're doing. We're taking the whole philosophy of B Corp to all of our suppliers. If you supply us with anything now um, at Ella's Kitchen, you have to fill up the impact assessment. And then we can help you make improvements to make your company stronger. And I hope that within two years, over half of our suppliers will be B corporations. I mean, some of these are multi, multi-billion dollar corporations. Um, so for them, you know, I'll give you an example, Havas, our creative agency, they're part of one of the world's biggest creative agencies. They're part of one of France's largest companies. They certified a couple of years ago as a B Corp. And it was one of the proudest moments of my business life 
And I said to them when they announced it to their team, I said, you know, the unintended consequences of you certifying could be huge. Think of all of the clients you deal with. And they're now taking it to all of their sister companies and their parent company and, you know, the companies that they do business with. It's amazing. And the companies they compete with, too, because this is a competitive platform, isn't it, B Corp? When, uh, when your customers uh, and your partners realise you're a B Corp, um, they want to do, if they're of the same mind, they want to do business with you and they want to keep doing business with you. So one observation there, when you were talking, I mean, I can... I hope that all the listeners can hear that enthusiasm, you know, really emitting from you. I can see it as well. You're really, um, and I, it'd be interesting to see if, if most CEOs of B Corps are like this, you're really an evangelist for this movement, aren't you? Yeah, I, I know I can come across the, the talk in the US, particularly about, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, who's drunk the Kool-Aid. I, I think, meant it as a positive, by the way. No, no, I know, I know. But I, but I think it's, it's a bit like... Um, do you remember the Asterix and Obelix uh, comics <laughs> back in the day? And I think it was Obelix that fell in the cauldron, right? I've definitely fallen in the cauldron and I've drank all of the Kool-Aid. But for me, it's just such an exciting movement. It has transformed our business, you know, on any measure you wish to look at. We're in the Sunday Times, top 100 companies to work for, like five years running. You know, this is all because of the way we're running the company, but it's all wrapped up in, in, in B Corp. And, you know, I think this is very generally speaking, but I think certainly millennials who, who, by the way, get a lot of crap millennials for being all about me, me, me. I think they're going to change the world. Um, I think they're absolutely brilliant. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. But I think people increasingly want two things from work. Um, and they're both based around pride. I think people want to have pride in the company that they work for. And I just don't think you can have that real deep pride if the company that you're working for is just about making money it doesn't move you um and pride for me is being able to go home to your parents or sit in the pub with your friends when we're allowed to and um literally come alive and go wow i work for such and such a company just look what we've just done and i've been part of this project and it's amazing and like genuinely come alive with passion so that's the first pride and the second pride and, and something that i'm super passionate about as well is autonomy i want absolutely everyone at ella's kitchen to have autonomy in their roles and i made a, um, a vow to myself about three years ago that i would not make another single decision at ella's um and i said this once when i was talking to people and, and someone in the front row burst out laughing <laughs> and i said what's so funny and he just finished laughing he said well what do you do and i said well why should i be making like if you're the marketing director You've been hired to be the marketing director. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You are going to be more experienced and, and have better ideas than me. We will have a chat and you can come to me for advice and everything. But at the end of the day, your decision, you're in charge of that. And I want that to filter down to everybody in the organization. And if we do it correctly, you will also create a whole generation of leaders in an organization. Yeah. I mean, there, there is accountability in there as well, but that all comes in part of the the bigger package doesn't it yeah. you, you'll you'll think hard about making those decisions and you'll make the right ones but also i guess b corp and a purposeful organization and the way you're leading ella's kitchen means that the, the the guidance is there to make the decisions that are best for the planet and for people as well as for profit aren't they which is what didn't happen 
you know, before B Corp and before people started thinking about triple bottom line? Yeah, it's great because because if you do it properly and you, and you really put it into the culture of a business, um, everybody has that responsibility. And I mean, it's a slight double-edged sword in a way in, in, in terms of everybody can criticise every decision, but that's okay, you know, in, in, in a strong company, that's all right. And so we do constantly, so I'll give you an example. I was very keen and we, we have put it down actually to have AstroTurf in our offices outside because the outside space was a bit messy i thought put astroturf down it would look really nice so we've done it and it looks brilliant and then someone criticized us doing that saying i think that's very environmentally friendly and i was like oh i hadn't thought about that and i was like why not because we're not watering it and they're like well because it's where it's made and i was like oh god i just hadn't thought about that so it's great you can be challenged more because i love being you know everyone loves to be challenged but um yeah, it does give everybody this um, responsibility, I suppose. And, um, and, a, vo- and a voice. You know, and a saying. voice, mm. which is everybody's voice is as important as everybody else's. You know what I mean? Nobody's voice should be louder or more important than anyone else's. So, you know, you're obviously purposeful business and leading business in a way that um, makes a positive impact on society and the world is clearly very important to you. Was there a specific time in your life that you remember when you realised that its business could actually be really instrumental in making or leading positive social change? Yeah, so there were two moments um, and they kind of changed my life. So the first one was a story I read in the newspaper. I can't remember what, what newspaper it was, um, but it was talking about the work that Microsoft were doing with the UNHCR, which is their High Commission for Refugees. And it was the work that they were doing in, in, in Bosnia. You know, you had 650,000 people leaving Bosnia over a long weekend. And the UN, the UNHCR have always like, struggled to properly sort of document um, migrants. So if you think about fleeing persecution from, you know, war-torn country, one of the first problems you face is, you know, food, safety and security. Closely after that, after that, believe it or not, is this sort of loss of identity. So imagine, Kate, if I dropped you somewhere on the planet, you had no identity whatsoever, nothing. That loss of identity is like a really, really powerful thing. And as I said, you know, in, in, in the Bosnian war, you have 650,000 people going over rocky terrain into a camp of over a million. So they had, yes, they had loss of identity, which was, which was an issue, but also families getting displaced from one another. Um, you told me earlier, you're in, I think you're in your son's bedroom. You know, imagine if you're going into this camp and, and you get displaced from, from your son and your parents. How long before you see them again? Six months? A year? Maybe never. You may, may never see them again. And there's this true story of three French Microsoft technicians having lunch in Paris. And they're talking to each other. And one said to them, have you seen what's on the front page of Le Monde about the, the UNHCR being totally overwhelmed? And they've got these issues of documentation and 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 people getting displaced, uh, their families, and they just can't match them up. And the other two are like, yeah. And he said, well, we're pretty good at this sort of thing, aren't we? So this guy went to his boss and went to his boss and went all the way, believe it or not, to the Microsoft board in North America, who said, fine, crack on, ha- have a go. They, th- they sent 30 French technicians out to Bosnia. Within three months, they solved the problem. And they came up with this. It was like a glorified briefcase. Um, and... 
it was a really clever briefcase that gave the UN officials the ability to give people instant documentation. So they would have, so Kate, you could be called Kate, and, and here's my proof. It also gave them, this back a long time ago, it gave them the ability to track people so they could match families who'd been displaced from one another up. And I read about this and I thought, there's no government in the world that could have achieved what Microsoft achieved. And, and when we looked to, we looked to governments increasingly to solve all of our problems. You know, I mean, how we still haven't, we still haven't fixed Brexit and don't get me talking on Brexit because it's been an absolute nightmare for our company. But we looked to the government to solve all of these complex societal and environmental issues when we know what can be done. And actually inside our companies, we have such amazing, creative, brilliance and technical technological know-how and something inside me flipped and i just thought wow you know the commercial benefit to microsoft is obvious imagine how you feel if you're one of those 30 technicians imagine how you feel if if you're in the support staff in paris that enabled this to happen or just in france working for microsoft and you heard about this you think yeah this is amazing like not only are we selling software to people great we're now actually changing people's lives for the better. And now Microsoft have a, a, a year-round support of, of the UNHCR. And I'm not picking up Microsoft because I, I really don't know much about them. But for me, it was just like this light bulb moment of this is how if, if businesses can turn their brilliance to help solve societal problems, there's such an obvious benefit to the business and society, we should do more of this. So that was the first moment that happened. And shortly after I read that story, I met Paul Lindley and he had this vision for Ella's Kitchen and the way business should be. And it wasn't about money, money. You know, we didn't measure things in money. We measured things in what we call tiny tummy touch points, which is a difficult <laughs> thing to say. Um, and it was all about the, you know, the number, of, uh, the amount of food that we were getting into, into little ones. And, and so I was like, wow, really inspired by that. My mind has been changed by this story. And that was the start of my B Corp journey, I'd say. Well, they're amazing stories. Thank you. And yeah, yeah they long are. Story, sorry. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Heartfelt stories. And I was just, I was actually just trying to imagine what it might be like to be one of those 30 technicians from Microsoft. Because not only would they have been feeling we're making a tangible difference in the world, but they probably got to meet and see and listen to the stories of the people they were helping and that will probably stay I'm sure that will stay with them for the rest of their lives but for it to be such an have such an impact on you that piece of media coverage as well is crucially important isn't it because it can go so much further so the more that we can get that story of of B corporations and of businesses making change uh, understood by journalists and then it can go out further and further to everybody to, to make that change in business. Interestingly, we, you know, we asked everyone at Ella's um, what three things they need to feel sort of every day or every week to be fulfilled at Ella's Kitchen. And it's yeah. really interesting because uh, pretty much everybody came back with the same thing. And when you think, of, when you think about that as a, as a business leader, it's like, wow, I think we all pretty much want the same thing. So what came back? I mean, there were... Four, but basically the top three without question were number one I want to feel valued mm. number two I want to make a difference and number three was help someone else and it's like I just I just find that so powerful when you think about you know when you think about people want to make a difference 
And make a difference isn't selling more of our stuff. Making a difference is the work we do with our charity partners, the work we do with people, all of this stuff that, and a lot of stuff we actually never even talk about. And I just think that's interesting. And just an, another story, because I, I was watching uh, Gold Rush on, on BBC Two, I think they've done a, a series on the Olympics. Mm. And I thought it was really, really interesting. So Linford Christie, who won the 100 metres gold for um, Great Britain back in the day, he was talking about how he mentored and trained Darren Chambers. And Darren Chambers came back from a terrible injury and he won silver mm. at the Olympics. And, and all these years later, Linford Christie was talking about it, saying, you know, wow, I could like bring myself to tears now, even now, talking about it he said but I'm all teared out I cried so much about it he said but honestly Darren winning the silver meant more to me than when I won gold and I just you know I really truly believe you can only get fulfillment at work in one way in one way only and that's helping other people I and and your the um survey that you did from your colleagues shows that they understand that too and maybe yeah. maybe that maybe that's partly working for a company like Ella's Kitchen and for working like a C, working with a CEO like you, but I think that seems to be certainly among some companies, that's the thing that people understand is the biggest driver for satisfaction and happiness and eventually productivity as well at work. Yeah, definitely, and and I hope well, I I believe you know we've all gone through this terrible period of the last eighteen months or so. But one of the things, if you haven't been a key worker and you've been working from home, is um, it's given us this time to sort of reflect on what does make us happy. Like, you know, and, and I know in many parts of the world, there are a lot of people changing jobs uh, at the moment. Yeah. Because people thought, well, they've realised we've only got one life. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled in what I do. I want to make a difference. So I hope that happens more and more and, and, and companies need to pivot and change the way they behave um so thinking about we were just talking about leadership and we were also talking about the kinds of well the things that people are looking for at work thinking back about leadership again what qualities would you say a business leader needs to have to ensure that their company can be a force for good can do that work that is making a difference and helping other people that you said is so important to all of your colleagues and yourself i think it starts with you need to want to do it because you know, in terms of quality, I, I probably just highlight one, and that's authenticity. Mm. Um, I think you need to be able to take all of your people who work for you with you, and it starts with your employees feeling genu genuinely proud to work at your company. So authenticity is vital. Um, if it doesn't come from a place of truth, then slowly but surely, your employees will know that. Um, and I would say, look, I think I'm not going to criticise any specific companies because, you know, I would never do that. But I think many CEOs are sort of retrofitting purpose into their organisations at the moment. And if it's not genuine, if it's just a marketing ploy, if it's just a way of selling more stuff, well, the truth will out. I, and I, I agree. There's, I think there's a mixture of... Um things being retrofitted. I think there are also companies, and again, I, I won't name them either, but certainly there's been a lot of publicity recently about companies that appear to be purpose-driven, maybe were from the beginning, but the culture is completely wrong. And that is also a sign of authenticity. 
Um, yeah. And and the the, the 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 employees have suffered for it, and the business will eventually too. Yeah. Well, we were talking about other businesses, but rather than talking about ones that don't inspire us, are there other businesses? Are there other businesses, B Corps or otherwise, that inspire you particularly? I'm going to cheat here, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to say that any and all businesses that have certified as um, because they've gone through the process, they've made that commitment. Um, every two years, it gets harder. And every three years, you have to recertify as a B Corp. So it's this sort of continuous improvement. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, I shop on Ocado, Ocado now have a shop in shop for just B Corps. And there are yeah. like 1,200 products from certified B Corps. And it is embarrassing how many B Corp products are in my basket. I mean, it's just like over half of the stuff we buy every week from Ocado as a B Corp. Yeah, that's great. Actually, I was interviewing uh, Charmian Love, who I think you will probably know from from B Lab, um, who and we were just talking that there are now four thousand B corporations, which is which is great. So it's really moving on rapidly. Um, it is, but we need to we need that to be like five hundred thousand. Yeah. Okay. All right. There's a there's a mountain <laughs> climb there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's important, you know, that Ocado does things like make it very customer facing so mm. that we, you know, we're inspired to buy those products. But I guess also part of the work you do um, in your role with B Lab is to help encourage more companies to do it. I guess you do it as a as a CEO of a B Corp too, don't you? Well, yeah. And uh, I mean, if you go back a few years um, when we certified as a B Corp, um, there were less than five certified B Corps in food and drink. There are now 80. Right. Um, and that's what happens. We all talk to each other. And it's kind of, shouldn't say a virus nowadays, should I? <laughs> no. um, but, but, it's, but it's like that, but in a good way, it's just getting passed on um, from company to company. And, and I would challenge any, you know, whenever I meet CEOs, they all claim they're saving the world, yet the world isn't being saved. So my challenge is always like, okay, so, Take the free test and prove it. Prove that you could, you are the best of the best. And then if you're not a certified B Corp, how are you persuading everyone else you come into contact with to follow you? Because, you know, us, so for example, take net zero. Ella's Kitchen achieving net zero is great, but it doesn't mean anything unless every other single company on the planet is net zero. So I don't think it's now acceptable or good enough for a CEO to be running a company and just looking at their company. You need to look at all of the companies that are in your supply chain and come into contact with you and think, how are we going to use our business to encourage them to be better? Yeah. And I think the more publicity that businesses get for doing that, the more it will become an expectation. So first of all, journalists will be asking those questions when they do corporate interviews, but more and more now um, you're seeing customers. And I think you talked about millennials before millennials and Gen Z are, uh, it's been proven that they more than any other generation uh, ask those kinds of questions when they want to become employees and, and as customers too. So they will yeah. hold companies to account. So I think, again, it's, it's important to do that kind of publicity when you are bringing your supply chain in. And exactly as you said before, it's not trumpet blowing. You're doing it for a much wider cause too. 
Let's move on to challenges. What about a real business challenge or obstacle that you might have faced and looking at, okay, what's the decision we make that's the correct one? I mean, I think yeah, we, we face challenges every week. You know, I, I always challenge everyone at Ellis Kitchen to have this mantra of do the right thing. And it's, I think it's increasingly difficult for purposeful business today as there are so many issues, both societal and environmental, to deal with. And these issues change. You know, who would have thought 15, 16 years ago that plastic would be the problem that is today? Mm. Um, yes, it is. And, you know, my saying of do the right thing, it's a simple saying, but, you know, because we're human beings, we're fallible and we make mistakes. The question is, what are you going to do when you make a mistake? Are you going to go back and correct it? So I'll give you an example. So um, should we air freight product or material um, to hit a deadline? So we recently had, had this issue where it came into the senior team and the team said, well, we've got to hit the deadline by September because that's the deadline you gave us, Mark. So we're going to have to air freight the first order in. And I was like, right, okay. So how does the project team think about this? What do you, what do you think about this? How do you feel? Well, not great. I'm like, okay, so what, do, what would you want to do? What we'd want to ship it, obviously. I said, okay, so what does that mean? It means we'd launch in, in January. I'm like, so why aren't you coming with an option? Is everybody aligned? Because we don't air freight stuff. I'm like, so how, how do you balance profit against damage to the environment? My challenge back would be, well, we should have done certain things sooner. We can't like penalize the environment because we didn't do our job in, at the right time. I mean, that, that's just one example. I would say... It's a great example because I think so many businesses face exactly that question. Yeah. So, you know, and do you prioritize money, which is just paper, over something that is going to damage people or the planet? Yeah, you have to make these choices, right, sometimes. And you have to have red lines and decide, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, we, we can talk about our, our response to the pandemic in, in a second. But more recently, I would say I have personally found uh, responding to the Black Lives Matter movement um, very challenging as a white, middle-aged, private educated man. Um, that probably puts me at the top of the pile in terms of privilege. And I've had to kind of check my privilege and have it reframed in a very uncomfortable way. And I've learned a lot in the last year, but that's been difficult. And I think it, that's probably an ongoing education for you and some of your colleagues too, isn't it? I, it certainly has been for me. Um, understanding my privilege and understanding every people's different places in the world and their experiences of the world. I don't think you ever stop learning about that. No, you, you don't. You can, well, you never fix diversity and inclusion, right? So it's, it's an ongoing thing. And, and the, we didn't respond how many other brands responded, which was just by putting token things up on, on Instagram we took our time to learn. We gave everybody in the business a day off to go and read, learn, listen, watch, so we could understand the injustice that we have in society and the wider world. And then we could come together. And we started by by um, coming from a viewpoint of, okay, how do we become an anti-racist organization? And then talking to various people, like they talked to a a local black leader who challenged me on this and said, I don't, I don't want to know what you're against. I want to know what you're for. Auntie's telling me what you're against. What are you for? So yes, 
you know, we've learned a great deal and we've recently launched our diversity and inclusion program, but it's, it's a continual learning process. But I definitely came from a viewpoint of, I was completely blindsided by it, if I'm honest. Um, and I like to think I'm a really empathetic leader who understands what's going on in society, but I don't know what it's like to be discriminated against because of the color of your skin. Yeah. I've never felt I've never felt that. I just didn't understand it. And until I read up on this, I was thinking, well, how can I help? Well, of course I can help. I lead an organization. It, it's, for, it's for people like me who sit at the top of this sort of privilege to make the changes. And I'm in a position where I can make changes and, and hopefully influence other companies. So that's kind of the learning that I've been on, the journey I've been on in the last year. And um, it's definitely blindsided me, but I would argue that we will never get social justice until we get economic justice. If we have people prioritizing money over people in the planet, we're never gonna right these wrongs. Well, these are all big systems, aren't they, that are in place that are no longer working or arguably they never were working. Um, so the big changes mm. to, to make. So we were just talking about adversity. One yeah. question that I ask a lot of activists as well as people who work in companies that are making change as well. How do you personally maintain resilience in the face of adversity if you're finding something you are just keep coming up against something very difficult? So that that question is is about a person it's a personal question, but also I suppose inspiring your um, the colleagues as as a leader at Ella's Kitchen. So we we've had just an unbelievably shitty year at Ella's Kitchen. So, you know, I've lost, personally, I've lost two uncles, not been able to go to their funerals because of COVID. Um, but for Ella's, um, two weeks before the pandemic, well, two weeks before lockdown, my managing director, who's, who's, who's my age, um, she died um, in her sleep on holiday. Mm. Um, I still find it very difficult to talk about. Um, mm. And we haven't, I wasn't able to go to her funeral we haven't been able to have a memorial and the hardest thing I've ever had to do was call my team, all of my team and I had to call Paul and tell them the news. It was just, you know, it just came out of nowhere and it was just impossible. And we decided that initially I was going to get everybody together on the Monday to tell them together. And thankfully a great friend of mine who's the CEO of Habas rang me and said, you, you can't do that, Mark. You can't tell people all at once. It, it, it's just not fair. You, ha you have to tell them in individually. So we called up everybody in the business on Sunday to let them know. And I then followed up with an email, finally got hold of everybody and said, look, take Monday off. We need time to, to think about this. Now I'm gonna be on on Monday, but take Monday off. Do you know, on Monday, every single person in the business turned up, including people who were meant to be on holiday. And it was incredible. So you talk about how, how we deal, you know, how you deal with adversity and resilience. And I think this is that collective resilience and collective way of supporting each other that has got us through this just, uh, you know, and then we were at home. So that was, you know, that was amazing. Um, but resilience, more, there was a, there's an amazing TED talk. I don't know if you've seen it by someone called Lucy Holm. She says, so I'm going to steal this, shamelessly from her yep. um lucy says there are three she has found three secrets that identify resilient people number one resilient people get that shit happens okay they know that suffering is part of human life 
Um, and we seem to live in an age at the moment where we're entitled to a perfect life, where shiny, happy photos on Instagram are the norm, when actually the opposite is true. Resilient people understand that bad things happen. They don't think, oh, everything else is brilliant for everybody else. Why me? They mm. get that bad things happen. Number two, resilient people are really, really good at choosing where they put their attention. So they manage to focus on things that they can change and somehow accept the things that they can't. And paying attention, not all the time, but paying attention to the positive is like a vital but learnable skill for resilience. Mm. And the last thing, so number three, she says, that, that is the secret of resilient people is resilient people ask themselves, is what I'm doing helping or harming me? It's that simple. What I'm doing at the moment helping me or is it harming me? Is it helping me to like ha drinking every night or is it harming me? Is it helping me looking at, you know, photos of uh, a colleague that, that's died every night or is it now harming me? You know, so, so those are the three things. Thank you. And thanks, Lucy. Um, and I like, I like you, you mentioned that they're learnable and they, I think every single one of those is learnable, isn't it? It's not something that you have innately. And if you don't have it, bad luck, you will not be a resilient person. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in the rule of three. You know, we are hardwired to remember three things. Yeah. So just remember, you know, resilient people get that shit happens. They choose where to put, pay, put their attention. And then they ask that simple question, is what I'm doing helping or harming you? He didn't put it on a, like a sticker. At yes. home, you know? It's like a bumper sticker, isn't it? But remembering that every day is like, okay. Yeah. Make me more resilient. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So do you get a, a lot of the people I speak to on this podcast are involved in campaigning of some sort or another, whether that's individual campaigns, part of a movement or part of a business. Does Ella's Kitchen get involved in campaigning for change? Yes, we do. And, and we're going to have a campaign this year. Um, our last campaign was something we called Veg for Victory. Um, <laughs> and we took, we undertook a big study, actually, with the British Nutrition Foundation, looking at all weaning studies that have been done worldwide. And we were able to prove for the very first time, actually, that when you start weaning, so when you start giving food to your baby for the first time, if you start with vegetables, both in variety and quantity, you start with vegetables, it will have a material impact on that child's vegetable intake when they're five, six, seven, eight. So they will eat more vegetables if you start with vegetables. And at the time, the Department of Health's guidelines were mashed down a bit of fruit. Started this campaign and it was like multifaceted. It was aimed at the supermarkets to stop more of our veg products. It was aimed at consumers. We had a really cool veg for victory at consumers. And it was also aimed at governments and the Department of Health saying, can you just change your guidelines to mash down a bit of veg? And we actually marched on the Houses of Parliament with a group of kids um, because I kind of knew that they wouldn't arrest the kids, right? We didn't <laughs> I did. hope they we didn't. They didn't, no. We, no and we delivered a huge green of paper, a massive letter at the Department of Health. And we lobbied them for, for quite some time to say, can you make the change? Now, I'm not claiming total credit that this is why they did, but they did make the change. So, yes, we are involved in, in activism, as, as we call it, yeah. but only around our mission. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. That's great. So you achieved your, your goal in that campaign, too. We did. Yeah, the main goal. Yeah. Well, I mean, we wanted to also like 
quadruple the sales of our our veg only SKUs. We've managed to double them, but we want to go further. We reduce the price. So we're doing all sorts of things to encourage sales of, of those products at the same time. Right. Okay. So again, that's a perfect example of where um, business can be success, a successful for-profit business while having a good impact on society at the same time. Yeah. And how often do you campaign? Is it, you know, do you have a campaign going all the time or do you give yourself a bit of a fallow period and then move into the next one? Well, we're always doing stuff. I mean, there are always campaigns going on. So the, you know, the Veg for Victory that changed to a sort of like a switch it campaign. And um, we're always pushing the start with veg messages. Mm -hmm. We're always hearing the veg products in our um, advertising that we do. So that's like a, just a continual drumbeat. We call it always like, we're always hitting the same messages. In terms of, you know, marching with kids, we, we obviously don't do that every, we haven't done it recently because of, of COVID, but we are looking to do something uh, this year. So I will come back and tell you All right, uh, what, great. what that plan is. But, you know, we're always doing stuff. Fantastic. We'll look forward to seeing uh, the new campaign launching later this year. So do you think that um, there is a greater appetite in recent years for businesses to get involved in, in activism and campaigning outside, you know, selling more stuff? Do you think it's it's become something that that more businesses want to get involved in, genuinely and authentically? Um, oh, you just slipped those two words. My answer, I was thinking, yes, um, unquestionably, um, brands are feeling quite and companies are feeling quite uncomfortable for not supporting and not replying to certain things and not having a stance. Mm. Um, and I think you know if you look back the school strikes these are the kids yeah. Yeah. children going out and not going to school and demonstrating they were the they were the biggest demonstrations the planet has ever seen and these were the youngsters saying enough where are they working where are they going to be working mm. you know where are the activists working at the moment they're working in businesses yeah. so it's no surprise that the businesses even if they don't want to, they're having to respond to what the people that work for them want them to do. I think it's great. Actually, just thinking about the, the climate strikes, there were quite a number of businesses and they were a lot of, I think initially, they were the businesses that are really well known as, as activists like Patagonia and um, especially retailers that have a sort of a high street presence. It's were obvious because they had big signs saying we're closed because we're going on the strikes today, mm. which was, um, which again, raises awareness of the issues and, and how important it is to support them. So the last question I'm going to ask you is um, um, I did some reading recently um, and Philip Kotler and Christian Sarkar, who are both experts on brand activism, they think that the future for, solving these big issues and we talked a little bit before about how these things might intersect climate um people um education health all of those things that the future is for what they call cross-brand activism or collaboration of brands coming together to help solve issues do you agree with that do you think that there's a role for businesses to play together so rather than the usual competing they might work together oh wow so we're just talking about people really because because I have this 
bear my bonnet that a business isn't really an entity. So Ella's Kitchen, when when people say, you know, what are they going to think about it? I'm like, what do you mean? Like Ella's doesn't exist. It's us. <laughs> um, so I think there's a big difference between brands supporting causes, donating money, mm-hmm. um, and even those that are really driving change through activism, you know, say like Patagonia do with environmentalism, there's a big difference. So do I feel that more companies are gonna start behaving like the people at Patagonia do? Yes. Do I agree with them that, you know, goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. If we wait for governments to solve the social and environmental problems that we are facing, we are screwed. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Regulation has to come, but there's a great, great quote um, from Barack Obama. Uh, you know, we are the first generation of leaders who won't be able to look back and say, we didn't know. Yeah. So we know what's happening. So I agree to an extent with what Philip and Christian are saying. And if I have hope in my heart, it will be that the people running businesses, we absolutely need to collaborate more to solve issues. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. We, we recently formed a, a flexible packaging consortium with four other companies. You could call most of them competitors of ours, but I, I don't really see how you can compete when it comes to the environment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we came together and in the UK, the, the recycling system is, is, is pretty broken. You've got all the local authorities doing different things. There are contracts with different companies. Some of them go for 35 years, believe it or not. And the central government have always said it's too difficult to pick up flexible packaging, not just Ellis. I'm talking crisp packets, like most of the stuff that, um, that you throw in the bin. It's too difficult and it doesn't pay back. Well, we've come together for the last sort of two, three years, and we've proven it is possible and it does make money. Because the, the, the pushback has always been, well, if we collect all of this stuff, how are we going to recycle it? Because there aren't the recycling places in the UK to do it. And we've said, no, 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 you're going back the wrong way. Get the material and then people will invest in the factories to convert the material because it's it's a no-brainer. It makes sense commercially. And us and others have managed to persuade the government to, to change. And in a few years, they will pick up not just our products, but all flexible packaging, every single local authority in the UK. They will then sort them and it'll then get recycled because we need to move to a closed loop. We would never have been able to achieve that if it was just Ella's Kitchen. No way, no one would listen to us. We'd never have had the meetings at DEFRA, we wouldn't have had the government, but nobody, it just wouldn't have happened. So collaboration is absolutely key um, when it comes to the environment. We need to be sharing, we need to be innovative, and we can't see each other as um, competitors and trying to gain a, you know, it drives me mad when people are trying to compa- gain competitive advantage when it comes to the environment. Like, really? Come on. Let's yeah. like work together, but don't, let's not wait for government. And there's no reason why we they should solve all of these problems. They're pretty busy doing lots of other things. We know what needs to be done. Let's get on and do it. I'm so pleased to hear that, Mark. First of all, it was a great answer to my question. But second of all, the flexible packaging conundrum is something that has been driving me and I'm sure many people listening to this and and everywhere in the world 
driving us crazy. The fact that it can't be, it doesn't appear to be able to be solved. So well done. That's great. I yeah. look forward to As all of our competitive that. products. It's amazing. You know, it's like yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, that is amazing. You know, we're like absolutely thrilled it's because we know it's our Achilles heel that it can't properly be recycled at the moment. It can be ours, it can be upcycled, but it's like, let's solve the problem. But yeah. we couldn't do it on our own. So yes, I think that will increasingly become the case because the problems we face are so complex. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Mark, that's it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that conversation and I'm sure everyone else will too. Brilliant. Well, thanks for having me, Kate. You've been listening to The Power to Make Change, a podcast about activism, campaigning and making change. You can find it anywhere you usually get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and tell your friends. I look forward to having you here to listen again. Mm -hmm.